Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. We're just going to look at one verse, verse 6. uh, As we were praying this morning, Andy alluded to this this account of the resurrection where the Marys go to the tomb expecting to find a body. And the angel meets them there. And look at verse 6 in Matthew 28. He is not here, for he has been resurrected just as He said, come and see the place where he lay. Just as he said, he told them, I will be in the grave for three days and then I will rise again. And the word of God says exactly what he said would happen, did happen. I love the story uh, that's told of a small church in Bangladesh where they were showing the Jesus film. It's just an incredible evangelistic tool. That movie's been translated in hundreds of different foreign languages and they were showing this film in in that language there to a group of people they packed out this church there were people sitting on the floor standing in the aisles and they went through the life of Jesus and the the congregation there the people were just enamored by this truth of who Jesus was and what he had done and they got to the scene of the crucifixion and Jesus was being whipped and and scourged and the just the the heartache of it the people in the in the crowd watching this movie began to really empathize with Jesus and people started crying and weeping and as he was finally taken off the cross, they were moaning because he was dead. And this little boy who'd been there before and seen the movie before stood up, couldn't help himself. He just said, don't be afraid, everybody. He gets up. I've seen this before. <laughs> Folks, he gets up again. The Bible is clear. Jesus rose from the grave. I'd like us to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as the Apostle Paul discusses the resurrection and the reality of it and the impact that it should have on us as followers of Christ today. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel I proclaim to you. You received it and have taken your stand on it. You are also saved by it if you hold to the message I proclaim to you, unless you believe for no purpose. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one abnormally born, he also appeared to me, Paul writes. Look down to verse 17 with me. As he shows how the resurrection is essential to the Christian faith, he puts this rhetorical question out in verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, or a rhetorical statement, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. Look at verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, 
the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Well, let's begin this morning by examining the evidence. Examine the evidence. The biblical record is clear. The evidence is there. I love what Dr. J.O. Kinnaman said, a biblical archaeologist, as he looked at the, the evidence that's out there in the archaeological world. He says of the hundreds of thousands of artifacts found by archaeologists, not one has ever been discovered that contradicts or denies one word, phrase, clause, or sentence in the Bible, but always confirms and verifies the facts of the biblical record. That evidence that's out there outside the Bible says... You can look at it all, and it's always going to confirm and verify the Word of God. You don't have to be worried that they're going to dig something up or discover something that's going to negate the Word of God. It has stood the test of time, folks. The contrary is that every time they do find something or dig something up or find a new way to to interpret the data, they find that it even makes the Bible even more reliable to to the people that would doubt, more verifiable. Imar Dahan talked about what he called the Cinderella principle. He said, you know, Cinderella's story is this. You have a glass slipper and a lady with a foot, and it fits. Therefore, you have a princess. He says, take that principle and apply it to Scripture. You have the Old Testament narrative that says this is the way it's going to be, this, this prophecy that Jesus will come this way, he will die this way, he will rise this way. Then you have the New Testament record that shows it was true, and you put those together, and you have Jesus is the Messiah who did what he said he would do. First of all, let's look at the evidence. By the way, this is simply the gospel. If you wonder, what is the gospel? We talk about the gospel all the time. Paul says, this is the gospel I passed on to you. First of all, in verse 3, 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus was crucified. He died on a Roman cross. He was crucified. His death was the center of attention in that city that day. The whole city of Jerusalem had come there, the Passover, the celebration, and the word was out that this Messiah, this person who claimed to be Messiah, was now being executed by the Romans. The word was out. There was an uproar, a stir in the city. It was evident that it took place. The attention of all the people focused on that one event. He was crucified. The Romans were experts at crucifixion. They prided themselves in how many lashes they could give before they actually took the person's life. They prided themselves on how they could prolong the death. And then how the execution could be so final. Their very lives depended, those soldiers, their lives depended on the fact that they were effective at their task, at their role of executing. No doubt, Jesus was crucified. The evidence is clear. Second thing from the scriptures here, the Bible says he was buried. He was buried. First part of verse 4. He died according to scriptures. He was buried. And the implication buried according to the scriptures. Muhammad the founder of another world religion, died on June 8, 632 A.D. And his burial place is famous because it contains a stone coffin of his bones. And tens of thousands go there every year to mourn his death. There is no such grave with the bones of our Lord. Isn't it interesting? He was buried. The best part is the next phrase in this passage of Scripture Jesus was raised from the dead. That he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, verse 4, according to the scriptures. We've been talking about it, praying about it, singing about it all morning. He 
was raised from the dead. Philosophy says there's a way out. You can think your way out. Science says you can invent your way out. Industry says you can work your way out. Jesus says, I am the way out. (laughs) The empty tomb says to philosophy, explain this event, the resurrection, the empty tomb. The empty tomb says to history, try to repeat this event. The empty tomb says to time, try to blot out this event. The empty tomb says to those of us of faith, believe this event. Isn't it interesting that over these 2,000 plus years, the empty tomb has stood as a reminder that we serve a risen Savior. I love what David Jeremiah says. He says there's no other religion anywhere in the world that offers an empty tomb as salvation. There's no other religion that has people lined up for hours in Jerusalem or elsewhere to look at an empty grave, an empty place where their leader is no longer. In short, Christianity is the only religion that celebrates a resurrection. Did you know that? Jesus is the only one who rose from the grave. Think about those ladies, the Marys, going to the tomb and expecting to find a body. They were ready. They were going to anoint the body for burial. They're ready, and there's no body. The angel says, he's not here. He's risen. Back in 2006, a van full of college students from Taylor University was on a trip They were involved in an accident, and five or six of those students were killed. One was spared and in critical condition. Major head trauma, disfigured, in a coma, placed in intensive care, and and the uh, family came and gathered around her and began to pray for her, talk to her, and days went into weeks, and weeks went into over a month. After five weeks, as she started to come out of that coma, She started to say some things or communicate some things by writing and respond a certain way where the family discovered that daughter they'd been praying for to come out of that coma wasn't their daughter after all. This was someone else's daughter who was in the van who they thought was theirs. And they discovered that five weeks earlier they had performed a funeral for their own daughter. Think about the shock of that. Think about the other side of that. Think about those parents who five weeks earlier thought they had buried their daughter. And to get a phone call from someone or a visit from someone saying, brace yourself, I have some incredible news. Five weeks ago, you thought your daughter was dead. She's alive. I can't grasp that. But it just gives me a glimpse of what the disciples and the ladies who went to the tomb must have sensed. Even though he told them he would rise from the grave, this sense that, you know, he's really not dead. Just as he said, he's alive. And then Paul goes on in this passage not just to say this is the gospel that he came, he was crucified, he was buried, he rose again, but he appeared. So if you're taking notes, letter D is Jesus appeared to many after he arose. Look at verse 5. If it wasn't enough to have that evidence. He says, and then he appeared to Cephas or Peter. Then to the twelve. 
And, and, and a skeptic might say, well, those were his followers, those were his buddies, those were his close uh, companions. Sure, they're going to, even if he didn't appear to him, they're going to say that he was alive. But then Paul goes on to say, then he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time. I've always thought, that was at one time. What about the other times that aren't even recorded? We know there are 500 brothers that he appeared to at one time, alive, in his glorified body, risen. And he says, most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep or, or died. Here's what Paul is saying. Check it out. 20-something years after the resurrection occurred, Paul writes these words, and he says, those folks are still around. If you don't believe me, check it out with them. They're people you know. The story's verifiable. Folks, don't you know that if Paul were to say that, somebody could have stepped up and said, no, we've talked to the witnesses and they were wrong. But that didn't happen. Every time the event was retold, told, and retold, and retold, it was confirmed by person after person after person. Paul says, check out the story if you don't believe me. He appeared to many eyewitnesses. And then he names some important people, Cephas or Peter, the 12. He names uh, James, who they would know. Names himself in verse 8 there. Check it out. These are, these are people who are respected. Go ask them. It's as if he were to say, Billy Graham was there. Ask him. You can believe him. If you're a doubter, look around. Look at the people in this room who profess to know Christ as personal Savior. We're not a bunch of weak, ignorant people. People who are educated, people who've examined the evidence, and we will say to you, he is alive. By the way, the Apostle Paul was his harshest critic. Remember that? Remember his story? Look at the book of Acts. He got permission from the religious leaders to go and persecute Christians because he was so against Jesus. And then Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, and he was a changed man. Even his harshest critic says, I'll tell you about it. In the early 1900s, a group of British attorneys decided that they would look at the evidence of the resurrection and evaluate it and see, if, is, there any, is there sufficient evidence that this reality or this, this claim would stand up in a court of law? They published their findings and their conclusion was the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most well-established facts of human history. I think it was even this group that said, we've secured trial, we've secured verdicts on much less evidence than we have about the resurrection of Jesus. He appeared to many. So examine the evidence. If you need that, if you're a, if you're a doubter, if you're questioning, if you're wondering, could it be true? Look at the evidence. It's clear. But if that's not enough, I invite you to acknowledge his presence. Acknowledge his presence. I love the story about two mischievous little boys, one eight-year-old and one ten-year-old. They were giving their mother fits, like little boys can do. And she tried everything to get them to obey and to be good little boys. She finally gave up, so she called the pastor. And she said, Pastor, can you fix these little boys? Can you straighten them out? I love it when that happens. Well, people come to me like that, I say, you know what? You got an eight-year-old and 10-year-old? We're about eight or 10 years too late. By the way, it's never too early to start disciplining your kids. Never too early. Amen, parents? 
grandparents. So she says, Pastor, fix my boy. So she says, okay, I'll, I'll meet with the eight-year-old this morning. I've got time, then I'll meet with the 10-year-old later today. So the, so the eight-year-old shows up and sits in the pastor's office. The pastor decides he's going to kind of put the fear tactic in and let this little boy know that God's watching him. So he just sits down, little boy's looking across the desk, and he says, do you know where God is? Do you know where God is? And the little boy's panicking. He's shaking. He doesn't know how to respond. And one more time, real out. Do you know where God is? Little boy jumps up, bolts out of the pastor's office and runs home. Runs into the house. His older brother sees him. He goes in the closet and locks himself up, hides in the closet. So his older brother goes in and says, What's, what happened? He said, boy, he said, we are in big trouble, dude. God's missing and they think we had something to do with it. <laughs> Folks, he's not missing. We know where he is. Okay? Not only is he seated in the heavens, but he's here today. He's here today. The Bible says in Matthew 18, verse 20, wherever two or three are gathered, Jesus said, in my name, I am among them. I'm in their midst. Wherever you gather, I'm there. Can you sense his presence? That's the question. Jesus is here today. I love hearing testimonies where people come to our church and say, I sense God's presence there. Church, don't ever take that for granted. Lots of churches go through the motions, but it's, there's no sense of God's presence there. He is here today. He should be making a difference. Kevin Miller tells a story about a friend of his on uh, a flight. He was a frequent flyer, business traveler, and he noticed that he was getting this incredible just service from the flight attendants. It was amazing. They were the most cordial, most polite, smiling, efficient, helpful, encouraging flight attendants he'd ever seen on a flight ever. So he, he grabbed one of the flight attendants as she walked by and said, I just need to commend you. I have never been on a flight, and I've flown a lot where the care, the service, the attitude of, of the flight attendants was better than I've had on this flight today. And she leaned down and whispered, see the lady back there in 12B? person said, yeah. She's the person who's in charge of all the flight attendants for our whole airlines. She's on our flight today. <laughs> Makes a difference, doesn't it? Folks, he's on our flight today. That will be making a difference in your life. Not just when you show up in church on Sunday morning or Easter Sunday morning, but every single moment of every single day, he is present. If you know Christ as Savior, but if you're doubting, if you're wondering, I just want you to, to know what you're sensing today is not a gifted choir or a gifted worship team or even an eloquent preacher. <laughs> what you're sensing, if, if there's a stirring in your heart, it's the presence of God in this place. It can't be faked. It can't be manufactured. He is here today. But even better, I would say, as we think about his presence, he is changing lives. He is changing lives. Look at chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. Verse 9. 
Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or anyone practicing homosexuality, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. Now that's not an exhaustive list Paul's giving. He's just giving us some examples of people who have been changed. Because look at verse 11. And some of you used to be like this. Some translations say, and some of you were this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were washed, that means to be cleansed, forgiven of your sin, sanctified, to be made holy, justified, that means to be in right standing before God. Do you see that? Some of you were this, but because of the presence of Christ in your life, you've trusted him as Lord and Savior. He has transformed and changed your life. Folks, he's changing lives today. Look at the list of the apostles and how they lived and died after they witnessed the resurrection. Almost all of them martyred for their faith because they wouldn't renounce their faith in Christ, their risen Lord and Savior. I think about the people in this church who I've gotten to know and love over these years, and and I think it would be neat sometimes just to have the people who stand on the platform to tell their story. For the pastor, and you've heard most of my story, the worship leaders, the worship team, the musicians, the choir, just to hear I wonder that list that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we could make that a longer list, couldn't we, folks? I listen to this choir sing, and, and I'm moved not just by the truth of what they sing, but by the, the integrity, the, the transparency with, with, with which they sing. And I look at some of these guys, and I think, some of those guys were rascals. I know some of their stories. I know the mess they were in. I know the, the life from which they've been saved because they've shared with me. And I just rejoice. I thank you, God. I look at some of these ladies up here. And I think about how God has transformed some of those lives. Forgiving them of their sin. Changed lives. One of my favorite writers, Ravi Zacharias, has written in his book called Has Christianity Failed You? As he thinks about the resurrection and changed lives, I'm just going to read you a little bit of it. He says, During the course of nearly 40 years, I've traveled to virtually every continent and seen or heard some of the most amazing testimonies of God's intervention in some of the most extreme circumstances. I have seen hardened criminals touched by the message of Jesus Christ and their hearts turned in a good way that in no, no amount of rehabilitation could have ever accomplished. I've seen ardent followers of a radical belief system turn from being violent, brutal terrorists to becoming mild, tender-hearted followers of Jesus Christ. I've seen nations where the gospel, banned and silenced by governments, has nevertheless conquered the ethos and the mindset of the entire culture. Then he goes on to give some specific examples of change, transform lives. We could go on and on and on. Folks, you look around and you see transformed lives. By God's grace, he's here. He's changing lives. 
Well, here's my challenge to you as we wrap up. Discover the difference, number three. Looking again back at Matthew chapter 28. The angel says, he's not here. He's risen, just as he said. And then the angel says, come and see the place where he lay. Here's what the angel says. Come and check it out. Discover that your Messiah not only died for you, but he rose again, and he's not here. He makes all things new. That's what he wants to do in your life. He will make all things new. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Look, all things have become new. We have our, the logo for our, or the, the artwork for this sermon, and our, our invitation cards has been that plant that's sprouting, that's representing new life. For, for that plant to grow, the seed had to die, and then God had to give that plant new life, and that's just a picture of what he does in our life. He makes all things new. I don't know if you've ever adopted a stray dog or a stray cat. Not very many people would walk up to a stray dog at their, their front door and say, oh, um, would you go get cleaned up? Because you smell bad. And I see some fleas and I see a tick or two and you smell and you're matted, mangy hair and matted and go get cleaned up and then our family wants to adopt you. Nobody would say that except me. What do we do? We go embrace that smelly, nasty dog, and we might hit it with a garden hose first. We eventually give it a bath, make sure the fleas are gone, ticks are gone. We might even take it to our vet, get the shots. We might even take it to a groomer, get all the foo-foo stuff done, little ribbons in their hair, painted toenails. We do all that for the dog. We don't expect a dog to do that when we adopt him. Some of you are waiting to come to Christ because you're waiting until you can get your life straightened out. So you can get that habit under control, that relationship fixed, that attitude. Folks, you're never going to get done. Jesus doesn't say, Come to me, all, who, who have, all you who have cleaned your life up. He says, come to me, all who are heavy laden and burdened, and I'll give you rest. He wants to change you. He wants to transform you. Let him do it. The Bible says that all of my righteousness is as filthy rags to him. In other words, the best I can be isn't good enough. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We don't measure up. The best I can be isn't good enough. It's that simple. That's why Christ died on the cross, to pay the price for your sin. To pay the penalty so that he could offer you this new life. The last thing I'll say is he awaits your invitation. Someone said, he's a gentleman. He won't barge in. He'll wait for you to open your heart. In John chapter 1, verse 12, as many as received him, to those who believed in his name... He gave right to become children of God. As many as received him by faith. Revelation 3, 20, he knocks at the door of your heart. If anybody will open the door, he'll come in and have fellowship with you. 
Have you done that? Have you discovered the difference that only Jesus can make? Folks, it's not about coming to church. I'm glad you're here. This is a good place to be. I think it's a a great place to be. It's not just about going through the motions. It's not even about carrying your Bible so you look spiritual. It is about coming to the place in your life where you say, Jesus, I'm a sinner and I cannot save myself. I cannot get to heaven on my own, but I know that you died for me. And I receive by faith that gift of eternal life. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. Take control. Ray Ortland tells a story that, that I like. He gives this analogy that every person has in their heart a committee. And he, he pictures a conference room in your heart with all the leather chairs and the bottled water and the marker board and all that stuff. And he says, think about this conference room and you have a committee of all yourselves there. You have the social self, the private self, the work self, the sexual self, the relational self, the religious self, and all the other representatives. And you have to make decisions in your life by representing those selves on this committee. And they always argue. And one wins and another wins. And it just never goes well. He says some people think that to receive Christ as Savior is to just invite him to come and sit on the committee. Here's a chair, Jesus. Be part of the committee. It's not what it's about at all. Like what Ortland says, he says, what you have to do is you have to fire the committee and invite Jesus to come in and just be the CEO, the chairman of the board, the boss of your life. I'm going to invite you to pray a prayer in a moment. If you've never prayed this prayer, I'm not going to tell you that this prayer is going to save you, but I'll tell you this, if it's the intent of your heart, if it's the intent of your heart, this is the prayer that will save you to acknowledge that you've sinned and that Jesus died for you, to invite him to come into your life and not just forgive you of your sins, we want him to do that, but to make him Lord of your life and make a commitment to trust him and to follow and obey him. I'd like to lead you to do that.